Hey everyone, it's Ariel Hawani, and I wanted to let you know that each and every week I'm part of a great program called the Ringer MMA Show. I host it alongside two absolutely brilliant minds. Their names, Chuck Mendenhall and Pete Carroll. And every Thursday, a new episode drops where we preview the weekend in mixed martial arts and react to all the biggest news. Plus, after every UFC pay-per-view, we give you a post-fight show. So this is what you have to do. Just follow the Ringer MMA show on your Spotify app so you don't miss an episode. We'll talk to you then. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. April showers bring a loaded sports calendar, and FanDuel is the place to bet on it all. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Voice is getting better. I feel good about that. I do want to get to some Patriots stuff. Josh McDaniels out in Las Vegas, and it says something about this Patriots organization that I want to address. I'll get into that. Plus, I do want to get into the Patriots being silent at the trading deadline as well. But we're recording late on Wednesday night after another demolition by the Celtics as they run the Pacers out of the gym. They put up 100 and 55 points, right? And the starters didn't even play in the fourth quarter of this one, of course, because it was blowout city. And now after seeing the first four games, this team, of course, starts 4-0. It's become appointment television. And for me, I'm going to watch every game every night anyway, like no matter what. I mean, I kind of have to. I'm going to be potting about it. But doesn't it really feel like this is turning into something special? And I get it. I don't want to get ahead of myself. We're just four games in. But you want to see every game that the Celtics play now, right? And look, the Pacers, they didn't have Tyrese Halliburton. He was dealing with an injury, so he didn't play in this game. Maybe it's a little bit closer. I'm sure it would be a little bit closer than the final margin. And maybe the Celtics starters play into the fourth quarter. But it was still exciting to watch, right? Even if it was just a blowout. It's crazy. If you looked at that Pacers starting five tonight, and of course, they didn't have Halliburton. But guys like Toppin, Bruce Brown... Miles Turner, Nemhart, and Matherin. Literally nobody in the Pacers starting five. And this is a team that's trying to get into the postseason, right? At the very least, they want to get into the play-in tournament. This team is trying. 
none of those guys would start in the Celtics. If you look at that Washington team, and I get it, they're tanking. Kuzma, Advia, Tyus Jones, Poole, Kalabali. None of those guys start in the Celtics. And you can say, well, yeah, Brian, those aren't great teams. But the point being is, if you look at a guy like Kyle Kuzma, he would be the third best player on the Bucs right now. They're starting Beasley right now. Middleton looks old, hurt. He's on a minutes restriction. And Brooke Lopez is an older player at this particular point in time. And Kuzma can at least create his own offense. And by the way, the Bucs have issues. They got blown out by the Raptors. This is after they got blown out by the Atlanta Hawks. They have issues right now. This team, though, and by the way, we're going to have to monitor that situation because everybody thought after the first game of the season, you had Jay Williams come out and say that Giannis and Dame have done more in one game together than Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, meaning like the cohesion between the two guys. Yeah, okay. That uh, may sound a little bit ridiculous, and I get it. We've talked about, hey, does this pairing really work and all this different type of stuff, but to make that type of proclamation after one game is just a little bit ridiculous to me, but I'm just pointing out the Bucs right now do have some issues on the defensive side of the ball, real issues there. I was texting with Bill about this, and they looked awful. Now, I was not dialed into the Raptors-Bucks game tonight, but I did watch them against Philly. I was not impressed. I watched a little bit of that, that game against Atlanta. I was not impressed. The Bucs have issues right now. There's no doubt about it. And one of the things that we mentioned is Damian Lillard is a guy that is a DH. He's David Ortiz. He only plays on the offensive side of things. He doesn't play defense. He is just a bad defend. Def, uh, he's a bad defender, and he's diminutive in stature. But anyway, we'll get into the Bucs in greater detail when we get closer to a Celtics-Bucs matchup. But it is interesting. Like, the Celtics come out of the gates there looking like the best team in the NBA and the Nuggets too, although the Nuggets lost tonight to Minnesota. But the point being is this Celtics team looks like right out of the gates, they're ready to go. And the Bucs, it looks like they're the team where everybody thought there was going to be this seamless fit. Yeah, maybe there's a seamless fit offensively for Milwaukee, but certainly defensively, they have a lot of work to do right now. And they don't have a lot of great defensive personnel. Outside of Giannis, yeah, Brooke Lopez, but he's a little bit older. Who are their defenders on the wing? You're bringing in Jay Crowder, off the bench, a guy that couldn't even play for you last year. So that holiday subtraction, if you will, may be more impactful than maybe they originally realized. Okay, so I was thinking about like the best starting fives we've seen in recent history. And I'm not saying this means they're winning the championship or anything along those lines, although I did predict before the season that I thought they would win the championship. And now the fan duel odds, the Bucks have gone into the plus 400s, the Celtics are at plus 370. But I was thinking about the recent great starting lineups, like over the past 20, 25 years or so. So obviously, the gold standard is, no pun intended, the Warriors. Curry, Klay Thompson, Durant, Draymond Green. Zaza started 57 games in 18, 70 the year before in 17. That team, especially the 17 team, that team was like invincible. Remember, they lost, what, one game the entire postseason run for them? And then you look at those Heat teams. After the big three, it was basically Chalmers, Haslam started 59, Battier started some of those games. The next year, Joel Anthony started 51 games, or I should say the prior year, the lockout year, Joel Anthony started 51 games. So they always had a guy or two that wasn't great in the starting lineup. I texted Bill about this too. He mentioned the 01 Lakers. They had Horace Grant on that team, Rick Fox. And then the 2000 team had Glenn Rice, AC Green. Glenn Rice was a really good player, but he didn't really fit in with that Lakers team. They also had Ron Harper. You had Kobe and Shaq. Obviously, the top end of those teams is better than what the Celtics have, as much as, and we'll get into Tatum and Jalen in a second here, as much as I love those guys, Shaq and Kobe, it's Shaq and Kobe. Shaq was the most dominant player in the NBA. And then you had prime LeBron with slightly below prime Dwayne Wade. So that, and Dwayne Wade was pretty close to his prime the first year they played together. After that, 
the knee injuries really started to pile up for Dwayne Wade. The 14 Spurs, I was thinking about them just because they were such a great team. They had great synergy. And remember, that was a young Kawhi Leonard. He won the finals MVP, but he wasn't the best player on the team that year. That would have been Tony Parker, at least in my opinion, it was Tony Parker. But that was one of those teams where the whole was better or the sum of its parts. They just played so well together. But to have all five, all five guys, it's tough to argue against the Celtics team in terms of the depth. Even when we talk about the great Celtics teams in a recent history, when you go back to 08, the team that won, what, 66 games or whatever, 65, 66 games, they were a dominant team start to finish in the regular season. They, of course, had their roadblocks in the postseason, won the championship, but needed seven against Atlanta, needed seven against LeBron and that Cleveland team. But if you look at that 08 team, Rondo was really young and Perk's a fine player, but Perk is, Perk and Rondo are not as good as Drew Holiday and Porzingis or Porzingis and White, depending on how you sort of want to grade the starting five for the Celtics. So I don't want to sound hyperbolic after four games, but it's just crazy to think about how good this starting five is. You don't have a weakness. We knew individually this group was going to be loaded. You have an MVP candidate in Tatum that made first team All-NBA the last two seasons. Jalen Brown made an All-NBA team last year, of course, got the Supermax. Drew Holiday was the second best player on a championship team in 2021. He was better than Middleton for that team during the run. He made the critical steal late in that game. He was an All-NBA defender last year. Derek White, was an all-NBA defender last year and led all guards in block shots. And Porzingis is a guy that is north of seven feet and he can shoot threes and he's coming off his best season. So you have four guys in your starting lineup that have already made an all-star game and Derek White is the only guy that hasn't, okay? And he's coming off, as we mentioned, his best season. So just an update on these starters. So this is prior to tonight's game because the advanced data hasn't finalized yet in terms of the five-man units. Coming into tonight, and this number is gonna go up, a 121.7 offensive rating together, a 90.5 defensive rating, a 31.2 net rating. So they're outscoring teams by north of 31 points per 100 possessions. They're just blowing teams out, and that number's only going to go up. Can't wait to see when it's finalized what that number actually is. Now, if you just look at the starters in terms of raw plus minus, how about these numbers after tonight's game? Tatum is plus 76. Derek White is plus 72. Jalen is plus 65. Porzingis is plus 58. Drew Holiday is plus 55. Come on, Drew, pick it up. Plus 55. What is that? It's not good. I'm just just kidding. But my point is being, my point being, this is four games and you have guys over plus 70, over plus 60, over plus 50. It's unbelievable. But to see how easy it is for these guys already, they're destroying NBA teams. And I get it. It's not the best competition in the world. But all of a sudden, this team is sort of Figured it out. They have this great synergy with each other. Now, I want to see them against better opponents. Like we saw the first time against the Heat, it was a battle. The Knicks game was a battle. They're playing the Nets over the weekend on Saturday, which that's not a very great team. I mean, it's an okay team. It's a team that's going to be competing, but they're not on the same level as the Celtics. So I do want to see it against better competition, but this is what you're supposed to do. When you're the far superior team, you're supposed to run teams out of the building. The Celtics are doing that, right? And if you look at the last two first halves, if you just look at the last two first quarters, 44 points and 42 points, but the last two games in the first halves, 57 of 101, that's 56.4%, 21 of 42, that's 50% from three. And they scored in the last two first halves, they scored 152 points on 56-50 splits. Unbelievable. They are just demolishing teams. And we thought the spacing... 
before the season. I talked about this a bunch. We thought the spacing was going to make things easier for everybody and all the shooting was going to make that spacing great. And it certainly has. And this whole idea, I heard like, oh, the Celtics are top heavy, right? Like what's going on with the bench? Top heavy is right now the Milwaukee Bucks with Giannis and Dame. Top heavy was the Suns last year with Durant and Booker and a bunch of guys that wouldn't shoot off the bench. They had like guys that would shoot or guys that wouldn't shoot. They had defensive guys or offensive guys. That is top heavy right now. They're, of course, deeper at this particular point in time. But the Celtics, their starters, every single one of them is a threat right now. So the starters tonight go for 92 points. Prior to tonight's game, the starters were averaging 102.3 points per game. And naturally, they didn't play in the fourth again tonight. So it would have been even a bigger number for them in this game. So the Celtics are first in starter scoring and they're last in bench scoring. Even last year, though, with the sixth man of the year, the Celtics were third in starter scoring. So as you'll see them sprinkling Hauser and Pritchard, and of course, Al's going to play big minutes for you. And it's nice that the Celtics are blowing teams out so they don't have to put a lot of miles on Al early. But they take Tatum out, then Tatum comes back in with some of those guys coming off the bench. Jalen then comes in for Tatum. Like, the whole idea of, hey, you need scoring off the bench. No, you don't. You don't need scoring off the bench when you have these five guys as your starter, right? The top end depth is unmatched. Like, you're three to four. You're four to fifth, or your fourth to fifth option. That type of depth is unmatched in the NBA. And quite frankly, it's unmatched in recent history in the NBA. Even that Warriors team. You're going from your fourth option is Draymond to Zaza. Like, and those guys played perfectly together. I'm not comparing those teams. That's one of the best teams I've ever seen play was the 17 Golden State Warriors. Quite frankly, probably the best team I've ever seen in my lifetime. I guess you could go to some of those Lakers teams in the early 2000s. Some of those Spurs teams are great. But for me, I thought that Warriors team is probably the best team I've ever seen play. I wasn't alive for the 86 Celtics. So don't go nuts about this right now. I didn't see the 86 Celtics play. But you get my point is... From a starter's perspective, if you're this deep, I don't give a shit about the bench scoring. And if you look at recent NBA champions, I'll go through basically the last 10 years or so. Nuggets in 23, bench scoring, when they won the championship last year, 32.9 points per game, 19th. The Warriors in 2022 were 11th in bench scoring. The Bucks in 21 were 19th. The Lakers in 20 were 11th. The Raptors in 19 were 17th. The Warriors in 18 were 22nd. The Warriors in 17 were 21st. The Cavs in 16 were 28th, the Warriors in 15, 9th, and the Spurs were 1st and 14th. So just two teams in the top 10, and the Spurs are kind of the outlier, right? The average comes out to around 16th. And the reason I'm fine with the Celtics being 28, 29, or 30th is because none of those teams have the same top-to-bottom depth in terms of their starting five. So I've seen some of this in terms of, hey, are you concerned about the depth? No, I'm not. I'm not worried about the scoring, right? It's just getting these guys to the finish line healthy, which one way to do that is the fourth quarter in the past two games, every single starter has played, or excuse me, tonight, every single starter played 27 minutes or less. In the past two games, none of the starters have been playing in the fourth quarter, okay? So to me, don't worry about scoring off the bench. I don't know why this has become a thing over the past couple of days. It's not a thing. So one other big picture thing. I can't remember really since maybe 09-ish being... Super excited to watch every Celtics game, right? And they had this streak after Gordon Hayward went down where the Celtics, the only like bright spot at Kyrie's tenure here when they were awesome to begin the season. And that Kyrie was really like electric during that stretch. That's the last time I can remember like, but after that Kyrie dealt with injuries and we all know the Kyrie story. 
But 09, it was after the Celtics won the 08 championship. Obviously, we were all wanting to watch every single game of the 08 season because Garnett's on the Celtics, Ray Allen's on the Celtics. But in this particular situation in 09, they were better than they were in 08. And then, of course, we know the history with Garnett going down with the injury, but that was, they were way better than they were the previous season. So that was appointment television. I feel like this is going to be something special all season long where they're appointment television. And really, you usually only get this in like the NFL, right? Because they play once a week. And every once in a while, like the past few years, you'd say, ah, who are they playing? It's a, it's a team that sucks. Are you really that excited for the game against, say, like the dreads of the NBA, like the Houston Rockets last year, even though the Rockets beat the Celtics? Like sometimes you weren't super excited to watch the game. For me this year, I think it's going to be every single night where it's just like, okay, are they really going to beat the shit out of this team? Are they going to put up another 40 points in the first quarter? So even though some of these games are not going to look good on paper, I still think it's going to be must-see TV. And really, so you get this in the NFL because it's once a week, although the Patriots, I mean, it's unwatchable right now. But like starting pitchers, you'd get this in baseball. Like when Pedro was here, you'd want to watch every single Pedro start. Or when Chris Sale first got here, he sort of had that too. Remember, he had the 300 strikeout season. But because with this team, it's also happening... When Tatum appears to be making another leap, more on that in a second. So you don't want to miss him dominating the league or Jalen or Porzingis because that's sort of a new element. Watching Drew and Derek White just fuck things up for opponents' backcourts. You want to watch that each and every single night. We had a little bit of this with the Bees last year when they were chasing down the record and that sort of came out of nowhere. But this to me, it's just the star power that this team has and the attitude that this team has. Like last year at times, they were aggravating to watch. Because despite the talent, it just seemed like they weren't ready to go all the time, right? They, it was almost like they'd play around with their food, and we don't have that whatsoever with this team. So I don't want to sound super fanboy-y, but I'm thinking right now, like, I got to wait until Saturday to watch these guys play again. I want to watch them again tomorrow night, right? That's sort of how you feel with this team. And this is exactly how you wanted to see them open up the season, right? And it was interesting to me after the game on Monday, where Tatum said, some would say we learned our lesson when he was asked about playing down to competition. And the follow-up question, I believe, was from Abby Chen from NBC Sports Boston. Would you say that? And he said, yeah, with a smile. So they are different, right? Where they messed around last year. And I get it. Not everybody was pulling the rope in the same direction. There were things going on. Guys were playing for contracts. You had a coach in his first year. You had the e situation. It was a mess, right? And they still finished with the second-best record in the Eastern Conference, and they still ended up going to the conference finals despite all that. So I'm not saying like last year sucked. They were a really good basketball team. But this year, it feels like there is an attitude that this group has together where they know how good they are. And I'm sure they felt it right when they got to training camp. They were excited, I'm sure, when they traded for Porzingis. And a lot of that, they mentioned the whole Marcus Smart thing and all that. I get it. But when they traded for Drew Holiday, there was an excitement level. But I imagine when they got to camp, there was like this moment where they're like, holy shit, we are going to be really good. We are going to be really difficult to beat. And especially for the guys that have these calluses, right? Especially Tatum and Jalen, to a lesser extent, Derek White, who of course was not good in the Heat series, was not good in the NBA Finals either. These guys have built up sort of these bruises that now they see, okay, this is our opportunity. We have everything we could possibly ask for in terms of what's on this roster right now. So they're treating it as such, where they want to come out, they want to build good habits. You heard Charles Lee at halftime told the NBC Sports Boston broadcast where, okay, yeah, we know what the score is, but this is about us. This is about building up good habits. So 
I just thought that the way that this team has approached the beginning of the season could not be more impressed. So Tatum in the game finishes with 30. He's a plus 36. And just some incredible plays like the physicality stuff continues to be there. Drove left, gets to the basket, gets to the free throw line. And then he had a nice step back three. He had a nice pass where he saw Jalen Brown posting up Bruce Brown. And he felt like, okay, this is a mismatch. Throws it right into Jalen and he scores over Bruce Brown to make it 20 to 8. He had the smaller McConnell on him, which, by the way, I don't know why Indiana kept leaving McConnell on an island. I get some of it as cross matches in transition, but send a double. Like Tatum's taking his time backing him down, and they didn't send a double. But anyway, anytime McConnell was on him, Tatum just took him in the post and scored. He had Neesmith, and Neesmith got picked on a little bit by Tatum and Jalen, and he just completely almost like turned Neesmith around, hit a shot over him, and then... At one point, he gets the ball in semi-transition on the left wing, just drives, get to the basket, hit a nice step back in the mid-range area, went right by McConnell a bunch of times. He had a step back three at the top of the key to basically close out the first half, made it 75-52. So I just thought all in all, he was outstanding in this game. And just some notes on him so far this year. So tonight, 27 minutes, 30 points, 12 boards, four assists. Through the first four games, He's 45 of 80, 56.3%. He's 13 of 32 from deep, 40.6%. And last year, he shot 46% and 35%. So, so far, and I get it's early, he's a 5% from three-point territory in terms of percentage points and 10 percentage points, more than 10 percentage points in terms of his field goal percentage. The shot looks like it's back from deep. Like, everything that Tatum shoots right now looks like it's going in. And he's had trouble over the past couple of years being consistent as it pertains to his three-point shooting, right? But Tatum right now in the restricted area, okay, that little circle, he's 22 of 27, 81.5%. And this is just sort of more evidence that the physicality, the post-up game, the getting to the rim is there with Tatum. So if you think about that 81.5%, obviously it's not going to hold up. But Giannis last year, who's like the biggest physical freak in the NBA, 74.7% in the restricted area. Jokic, a big man. 74.5%. Tatum's at 81.5% to start the season. That's aggressiveness with his drives. That is, as we mentioned, the post-up game and just overwhelming smaller defenders. So Tatum looks like this was the last leap, right? Where, okay, yeah, his playmaking, that could get better, although it looks better even this season than it's been in previous years. Oh, by the way, tonight he got to the free throw line 10 times as well. But this is sort of like the last piece where his ball handling has improved. He has all these different moves. The footwork looks really good. Now it's just, hey, let me overpower you with my physicality. We're seeing that through the first four games of the season. Okay, Jalen had the huge night, the game on Monday, and then tonight, 16 points in his 25 minutes, which, by the way, our parlay, yeah, Halliburton didn't play, so, of course, that got voided. But Jalen was, the parlay was Jalen for 20, Tatum for 25, Tatum obviously hit that, Celtics to win the game, Jalen for 20. He didn't play in the... Fourth quarter. So the Celtics blowing them out actually hurt me from a parlay perspective. But anyway, they would have hit it. I think Jalen would have scored four more points. He had opportunities late in the third, too. I'm like, just get this. Come on, Jalen, just do it. Come on, the parlay, the -the off-the-pike parlay is going to cash. Anyway, one thing that we've noticed with Jalen ever since the opener, he just feels way more comfortable. And you could see in this game where we mentioned the post-up of Bruce Brown, but he hit a mid-ranger over Neesmith where his mid-rangers look so good right now where it's just like, He's got the perfect arc on him, and he wasn't even hitting the rim on a couple of these mid-rangers. So all in all, I thought a pretty good game from Jalen, despite the fact that 
He had the out of world performance the other night, just a solid game overall. Derek White. So we talked about Derek White on Monday, where he took just three shots. It was Jalen's game, so he dished out eight assists. Tonight, four threes. He scores 18 points on 10 shots. He's seven of 10 from the field. Just incredibly efficient. And this is a game where he knew, okay, I'm going to come out and I'm going to shoot shoot the ball. I'm going to hit threes tonight. So he just takes what the game gives him, right? He had an open three off Tatum penetration. And how about the play where this is just a typical Derek White play? He saves the ball. It ends up being after he saves the ball, they end up getting a Porzingis dunk out of it. But this is a regular season. Game four, this guy's busting his ass to save the ball and get it to eventually Porzingis to get an easy dunk. And the confidence with Derek White is just so much different. He had a pull-up three to end the first quarter to make it 44-27, where if this was his first year with the Celtics, he wouldn't even have considered taking that shot, right? And then later on had a pull-up too. So he's got the floater game, he's got the mid-range game that he can hit those shots, and he's got the pull-up three-point game as well. So he was really good in this game. I thought another impressive performance from Derek White. Drew Holiday, I felt it was the best Drew game yet in terms of the offense, where he was six of nine, three of four from deep. He had the highlights against Miami in terms of the blocks. Like that performance was incredibly impactful. But in 25 minutes in this game tonight, he gives you 15, seven, and four. And you could, a little bit of his physicality back down the smaller Matherin right off the bat to make it two to nothing. Then he hit a pull up three to make it 14 to six. Semi transition, he had a three, 23 to 10. And he had a nice little drive where. He got into sort of that floater area and hit a nice little shot to make it 60 to 40. So you saw pretty much everything from Drew in terms of his offensive arsenal. And Drew, I think with him, and we'll see bigger performances as the season goes on, of course, still getting used to everything. But Drew, I feel like he's got to be surprised by the spacing, right? Because last year was basically him and Giannis. Middleton was banged up the entire season. So teams were really game planning to stop. Giannis Antetokounmpo and him and now it's like okay we got to stop Jalen we got to stop Jason Tatum we got to stop Porzingis and then it's Derek White and it's Drew Holiday right so in some ways he may be like the fourth guy on the scouting report from an offensive perspective heck he may be the fifth guy on the scouting perspective from an offensive perspective right in terms of what the opponent is looking at so a really nice performance from Drew and I think his season's only going to get better right if you're talking about from an offensive perspective He's probably had the slowest start, but overall, you could not be more happy with bringing Drew Holiday and what he brings to the team, and his impact will be felt more in the postseason than it is during the regular season. Not to say he hasn't been good, but it will be felt more in the postseason. Okay, Porzingis got to the line six times, had the 13 points, but his defense has been awesome so far this year. If you look at entering tonight, teams are shooting 46.2% at the rim, and 28.6% from the short mid-range with Porzingis on the court. That's via cleaning the glass. Those are just ridiculous numbers. Talking about at-the-rim teams are shooting less than 50%, and in that short mid-range area, they're not even shooting 30%, and that's partly Porzingis being that deterrent at the basket. He said the other night, it's basically paradise on defense because he's playing with Drew Holiday and Derek White and then Tatum and Jalen Brown, where basically he just gets to clean everything up. So it's the perfect role for him as that seven-foot shot blocker, if you will. Okay, one of the big difference from last year, I feel like, is the paint. So the Celtics have now, through the first four games, outscored teams in the paint 216 to 160. That's a plus 56. If you go to last year, the Celtics were outscored 4,010 to 3,804 in the paint. So they were outscored by 206 points in the paint. This year, they're outscoring opponents by 56 points. Joe Mazzulla said before the season... 
they have to be different than they've been in different seasons, right? Or different than they were last season, I should say. Post-ups, getting to the free throw line, all that type of stuff. Well, what's happened is because of the spacing this team has, because of the threat of the three-point shooting, they're having cleaner drives to the basket, and it's resulting in this team dominating in the paint, something they didn't do at all last year. They didn't get in the paint and score very often. This year, that's certainly something that's been addressed. Okay, so I feel great about the Celtics. So fired up to watch them again on Saturday night. I did want to mention one thing, Celtics adjacent, if you will, and that's the Harden trade. Harden goes to the Clippers. The 76ers portion of this is what's important to me. Covington, Batum, Morris, who wasn't even playing for the Clippers, Kenyon Martin Jr. So they also get back in that deal. A 2026 first rounder, which is the least favorable of OKC, the Clippers, and Houston if it lands between 5 and 30. So they're going to get, that's going to be a good pick and it's going to be a good asset, right? Because the Clippers may stink in 2026, depending on what happens this year. So that could be a really good pick of the Clippers flame out. And things may not go well in Houston over the next couple of years. Like you like the idea they bring in Ime, but there's no guarantee that that's going to be a great team going forward either. Okay. They also got a bunch of seconds, but they also got a 2028 unprotected first rounder from the Clippers, which again, that could be a really good pick and a 2029 pick swap with the Clippers. So those are valuable assets. And Covington, Batum, Morris, those are all expiring contracts. So Chris Mannix had reported that Zach Levine and OG Ananobi are possible targets. I don't see the Levine fit. He needs the ball a lot. And right now you have Maxie and Embiid. I just let those guys play in the two-man game. I've never been the biggest Levine fan. I know he can get hot from deep, but he's not a great defender. And Maxie's not a great defender either. You want those two guys out there together. It just doesn't really make sense to me. I'm not giving up my assets for... Zach Levine, because it still doesn't make me better than the Celtics, okay? It was also reported that last year, one of the other guys that he mentions, as we said, OG Ananobi, the Raptors last year said they wouldn't trade OG Ananobi for three first-rounders. And Ananobi's a great defensive player. He has a player option for next season, probably is going to hit the market and try to get paid. And look, maybe Philly says, hey, we can bring you in and then we can pay you after that if they make the trade for him. I do think that would be a good fit, but it's tough for me to see them giving up big assets for him either. But I do think this is interesting from a Philly perspective because this is a team that did take the Celtics to seven games last year. Obviously, the Celtics are way better, and I do think Philly's going to be, they're doing some things differently this year than they were last year. Offensively, there's a lot more movement. Like with Harden, there was a lot of dribbling the basketball. They played slow. They're playing definitely faster this year. But I do believe from a Celtics perspective, this isn't great just because the Sixers have assets. Not that I think the, the Sixers are going to overtake the Celtics this year in the Eastern Conference or anything along those lines, but I just don't like them having assets to play with. Now, who knows? Maybe it's Siakam. He's another guy that's up after the season. He's had his issues in Toronto there. But the Harden thing wasn't going to work for Philly. And they had their chance to beat the Celtics last year with Harden. It's not going to happen this year. Like last year was their chance to make a run. Who knows what happens between them and the Heat? I mean, I'm sure Harden flames out. But remember... Harden was awful to end that series. Four of 16 and then three of 11, right? He was a no-show after having some big games earlier on in that series. So from my perspective, what they're doing is they're building around and beating Maxi, and eventually trying to make a move in terms of adding another piece. Now, here's the interesting part. Embiid said before the season, I just want to win a championship, whatever it takes. I don't know where that's going to be, whether it's Philly or somewhere else. So Embiid, that's sort of putting the pressure on Philly to make a move at this year's deadline or sooner, right? To try to put a championship caliber team around him, right? Because he got his MVP, now he's about winning. Like you could tell he was aiming for the MVP for an extended period of time. Now he wants to win, according to what we hear from Embiid. Now I would say this, 
Embiid has not been great in the playoffs either. Like, we criticized Harden. Embiid hasn't been great. But I do think that a rush move for the Celtics, like if Daryl Morey feels pressured and they rush a move, that could be good because it could be the wrong move, right? Like, remember, Daryl Morey is the same guy that traded picks for Westbrook in the Chris Paul trade. They got two first-rounders and two pick swaps in that trading situation. Remember, when they traded for, when they traded away Chris Paul, they gave up two first-rounders and pick swaps, which made no sense. So, and look, they, he was pressured by Harden. Harden didn't want to play with Paul, and Harden wanted a situation where he's playing with Russell Westbrook again. That went poorly for them. So this could play itself out in Philly where they make a dumb move because they feel pressured by the superstar. So this is just going to be interesting to monitor. Maury's all over the place right now, okay? So I do wonder, though, too, do guys want to play with Embiid? Harden did because he wanted to get away from Kyrie, and Harden's just a weird guy. But are guys lining up to play with Embiid like they would for Steph or Jokic or Giannis? I just don't see it. And quietly, as I mentioned, Embiid, Game 7, 5 of 18 for 15 points, and the Celtics abused him, in particular Tatum, the high pick and roll. Embiid is the primary defender on Tatum in that game. Tatum had 24 points, he was 8 of 10, and he hit all four of his threes. And I know he was banged up, but the MVP, like everybody talked about the comparison last year between Jokic and Embiid, and the argument was, well, hey, Embiid's a better defender. Embiid's defense was exposed in the postseason, Jokic's wasn't. So look, goodbye Philly getting some assets back, but let's see what they do with it. Um, I feel like this is a fascinating situation. They do have cap space too, in terms of the offseason. So they have cap space, although the free agency pool is not great. Although we'll see what happens in Clipperland because Kawhi and Paul George are technically up after the season as well. But my overwhelming point with this is, this is just, I don't feel like it was a great day for the Celtics when they made that trade. I still think that the Celtics are the far superior team, but the fact that they got that much for Harden, I just don't understand it. The Clippers, who were they sort of going up against? Nobody else wanted James Harden. So why would you give up that much? I guess maybe the argument on the Clippers side of things would be, hey, we want to get him in early because it is a weird situation when you have Paul George who needs the ball, Kawhi who needs the ball, Westbrook's now in a weird spot where he needs the ball, and Harden. Like, that's a difficult thing to sort of figure out the synergy of this, and maybe you do have to eventually move on from Russ, so maybe you want to get these guys all playing together so you can sort of figure out what the situation is going forward. But Philly finally gets rid of James Harden, and we'll figure out what this thing is going forward. I just hope they don't make, and I don't really even see the move that's out there right now that could sort of put them over the top with the Celtics. We'll see if they go after the next disgruntled star or something along those lines, but definitely an interesting thing to monitor. I don't think any of the guys that got back, like Covington, okay, he's a decent player, but he hasn't been great for the past couple of years. He had a decent start to the season, but he hasn't been a great player. Marcus Morris, we know what he is. He's a black hole. He's not going to fit in to Nick Nurse's system whatsoever. So I don't think any of the players they got back were significant. And I don't think losing Tucker is a big deal either. Like who are they putting Tucker on? Tucker's not covering anybody on the Celtics. So all in all, I just feel like right now after the first, what, four games or so of the season, the Celtics seem to be in a different class than everybody in the East. And we'll see. But that Bucks team needs to figure things out. Philly does not have the star power that the Celtics have right now. So if you were excited to watch the Celtics team this year, I feel like you're even more excited to watch them at this particular point in time. All right, a lot more to get into. I do want to get into Josh McDaniels getting fired in Las Vegas, what it means from a Patriots perspective, and also why did the Patriots stay quiet at the trading deadline? We'll get into that in just a little bit. As the weather gets colder, the NFL offers stay hot on FanDuel. Right now, all customers get a no-sweat same-game parlay for every Thursday night football game. 
Just place a three-leg same-game parlay, and you'll get bonus bets back if you don't win. So I'm looking at this for a same-game parlay for this Titans and Steelers game coming up, of course. I like this. This is for plus 427. Steelers to cover the two and a half. Jalen Warren over 19 and a half receiving yards. George Pickens over 40 receiving yards. Pickens has hit in four of his seven games over 40. And Warren has hit in five of his seven games in terms of over 19 and a half receiving yards. And I just so happen to have Warren on that last weekend as well, which is good for me. NFL same game parlays are the perfect way to combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payday. Build your own or choose from one of the popular SGPs pre-built for you in FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. Just visit FanDuel.com slash Pike for a chance to get a no-sweat same-game parlay every Thursday. FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21-plus in president select states. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Max refund $5 unless otherwise specified. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. So Josh McDaniels now out in Las Vegas, as we are mentioning, of course, Dave Ziegler, the guy running the organization, the GM, although Josh had a lot of power, obviously, there. He brought Dave Ziegler with him. They're both out. So McDaniels out in Las Vegas. First coach fired for the season. Somehow, he was actually worse in Denver from a record perspective than he was, or I should say he's worse in Vegas than he was in Denver somehow. So he's 9-16 and 16 in Vegas. That's a 360 winning percentage. He was 11 and 17 in Denver, 393 winning percentage. Not a lot of longevity for Josh McDaniels in his head coaching career, right? So it's just, he was so bad in both spots. But you say Derek Carr's your guy if you're McDaniels. What a mess that was. And remember, he left the team because McDaniels decided to bench him and Derek Carr didn't want to be a distraction. So he wasn't like around the team. You rarely see this in professional sports. It was just really weird. And by the way, Carr had his worst season under McDaniels. 86.3 passer rating last year. That was his worst since his rookie season. 60.8 completion percentage worse since his rookie year. So basically my point is his worst year that wasn't his rookie season, right? Now, he hasn't been great this year either. We would all acknowledge that. But the point being is this was a guy that was 31. It wasn't like he was 36. And all of a sudden, you inherit this team and the quarterback gets significantly worse. And you're an offensive coach. So then you said, hey, basically the argument would be in McDaniel's case is, hey, well, it wasn't me. It was actually the quarterback. We need a new quarterback. So who does he go and get? Old friend Jimmy Garoppolo. Well, Jimmy has nine interceptions, the most in the NFL. He was absolutely atrocious in that Monday night football game. Jimmy has a 74.3 passer rating. That is 31st of 36 qualifiers. He's right in front of Zach Wilson. Even Mac Jones is better this year than Jimmy Garoppolo. But anyway, you look at more issues in terms of the offense that McDaniels has put together there in Las Vegas. They have no running game. Josh Jacobs is averaging 3.1 yards per carry. This guy was considered to be one of the best running backs in the NFL. That's 50th of 58 qualifiers. As a team, think about this for a second here. The Raiders score on just 25.3% of their drives. That's 29th in the NFL. The only teams worse, the Steelers, who Matt Canada should not be a coordinator in the NFL, the Patriots, we witness this every week, and the Giants, who stink. Those are the only teams worse than the Raiders in terms of their scoring percentage, which basically just means the percentage of drives that end up in either a field goal or a touchdown. Okay, so just a joke. And they have this whole mess with Devontae Adams where he publicly has made comments about wanting to win. We all know that he wants out of there. Even Aaron Rodgers is talking about get him a trade. And then you have a team meeting 
a couple of days ago where basically everybody can just air out their grievances, uh, grievances rather. So how did that go? Not, not particularly well, because two days later, Josh McDaniels is gone. Hey, guys, let's all come together. We're going to have this meeting. I want to hear everybody out. Uh, yeah, Josh, you're gone. OK, like just dumb stuff like nobody knew or everybody knew that Josh is going to be gone soon after they had that meeting. I mean, come on. OK, so Josh is just another example of a Bill Belichick disciple that cannot get it done elsewhere. Josh McDaniels, if you look at his ranking in points without Tom Brady, so the seasons that he didn't have Tom Brady, where did his offenses rank in points? Eighth in 2008, of course, that was Randy Moss and Wes Welker. If you go on from there, 20th, 19th, 32nd, dead last in the NFL with the St. Louis Rams, 27th, 6th, 12th, and 30th in terms of points. That's where Josh has ranked without Tom Brady. So Josh without Tom, that's about the 19th best offense on average. So below average, and you're more likely if Josh McDaniels is running your team without Tom Brady, you're more likely to have an offense that ranks in the 20s than in the top 15. Just three top 15 finishes. He can't even get to average without Tom Brady. His head coaching record is 20 and 33. That's a 377 winning percentage. Here are some guys that have better career winning percentages than Josh McDaniels. Adam Gase, 400. Mike Malarkey, 404. Butch Davis, who was a mess with the Browns, 407. And Cliff Kingsbury, 432. Adam Gase, crazy eyes. Mike Malarkey, Butch Davis, Cliff Kingsbury. These guys have better career winning percentages than Josh McDaniels. So <laughs> it was just awful. So it brings us to a bigger point. Look at these Bill Belichick assistants from his time with the Patriots. Okay, so with the Patriots, look at his coaching tree. NFL winning percentages. Bill O'Brien, 520. That's the best. 520, so barely over 500. That's the best guy. Brian Flores, 490. Eric Mangini, 413. Josh McDaniels, we mentioned him, 377. Romeo Cornell, 337. Pains me to say that because everybody loves Rack. Matt Patricia, <laughs> 314. Joe Judge, maybe his Mona Lisa, 303. <laughs> so I didn't want to throw Charlie Weiss into the conversation here because he coached in college, but for what it's worth, 456 at the collegiate level. He had a remarkable, it was actually remarkable. He was just 35 and 27 at Notre Dame. That's tough to do. He's 35 and 27 at Notre Dame. Brian Kelly played in a national championship and made it to the college football playoff at Notre Dame. Charlie Weiss was 35 and 27. Okay, so of that coaching tree, just one guy north of 500, Bill O'Brien. Four of those seven guys in the NFL did not even win 40% of their games. I'm not even talking about 500. Four of the seven didn't even win 40% of the games. So all those guys, they leave New England, they fail. And I think the biggest thing is they think that it's about Bill and they want to do it Bill's way. That happened with Josh the first time. Remember, he's basically mini Bill. And it happened, if you look at it this time, he was arrogant. He went into a division. And I said at the time, and this is at my previous employer, I thought this is a dumb job to take. You have Mahomes in the division. You have Herbert in the division, even though Staley stinks as a coach. And you thought, and at the time, I thought Russell Wilson was going to be the third best quarterback in the division. You could argue Wilson or Carr. Wilson sucked last year. But the point being is you knew unequivocally there was going to be 
two quarterbacks better than your quarterback. And he thought that because he's Josh McDaniels, he could make it work there. This was a terrible job to take, especially considering the owner is a joke in Mark Davis. And now he's not only paying John Gruden, who they moved on from, they're also paying Josh McDaniels, who didn't even last two seasons, right? And if you think about it, he thought he could win with Derek Carr, and then he thought he could win with Jimmy Garoppolo. This is all about him. He thought that he was the reason. He thought he was one of the main reasons Tom Brady was successful. Like, give me a fucking break, dude. Look at the rest of your resume. Unreal. Okay, so you just kind of go through these coaches. Joe Judge, we all know he tried to be a Bill knockoff. Remember, he had the wet footballs out of practice, and then he claimed guys were calling him to come back. Guys that left in free agency, he said, were calling him because they wanted to come back. Joe, name one guy. Name one guy that left the Giants that called you and said, hey, I'd like to come back. None of them. Because every guy that left that year had a better record with the team they joined than the Giants that season. He was a joke. Remember, this guy did a quarterback sneak on third and nine. Just an awful football coach. Patricia was getting on reporters in Detroit for their posture. That's arrogance, man. Look in the mirror and realize you stink as an NFL head coach and stop getting mad at reporters because you think that they're slouching in terms of their posture. And now it's not going well for the Giants this year, but after Joe Judge leaves, they make it to the playoffs. Patricia, after he leaves, look at what Dan Campbell's doing. Like that's a really well-run organization right now. We're talking about the Detroit Lions. Patricia had it like for the Lions, it was bad. And that's talking about the Lions. Patricia was bad as a Lions coach. Think about what that says about Matt Patricia. Now, Flores did his own thing. Like he was different than Bill Super blitz heavy when he got there. And obviously there was the huge issue with him and Steven Ross, the whole tampering situation with Tom Brady and among other things, like a lot of issues there between Brian Flores and Steven Ross. And I do believe that Flores could have success in another opportunity. I do think that Flores is a good football coach. If we're looking at all these guys, I do think he's good, but it doesn't help Flores that the guy that they replaced him with, Mike McDaniel, Fix the quarterback in Tua, and now that Miami team is going to make it back to the playoffs for the second consecutive season after they moved on from Flores. Okay, and I know the whole tanking situation and all that, but you can't argue with the success that Mike McDaniel's having right now, right? Like Mike McDaniel, if you asked all the teams in the NFL, who would you rather have, Mike McDaniel or Brian Flores, nobody's taking Brian Flores. So I like Flores as a coach, but unequivocally, Mike McDaniel's the better option, right? So The reality is most of these guys, they take Bill's program and they think it'll work for them. They think Bill is the secret sauce and they think the program of the Patriots is the secret sauce. And the reality is the secret sauce wasn't Bill, right? It wasn't Bill Belichick. That was not the secret sauce. It was Tom. We actually have the evidence, right? What did Tom do in 2020? He went to Tampa and he won this thing called the Super Bowl. And if you look at Tom, since he left the Patriots, now he's retired, of course, he went 32 and 18. That's a 640 winning percentage in the regular season. Remember, only one of the former Patriots assistants has a career winning percentage north of 50%. Okay, north of 500, I should say. That's Bill O'Brien. Nobody else is over a 500 record. Brady was winning at a 640 clip. He has a five and two playoff record in Tampa. He won the Super Bowl. He was the Super Bowl MVP. He was the passing leader in 2021, where the, that year he should have been the MVP. 2021, he also led the NFL in passing touchdowns. He was second team all pro. He should have been first over Aaron Rodgers. Anyway, that's a dig- digression. He was one of the best two quarterbacks in the NFL that season, no doubt about that. And he went to a team that the coach's motto, 
Bruce Arians, was win or lose, we booze. Bruce Arians is a clown, okay? And what did Tom Brady do? He fixed the culture in one year. It only took him one year to fix the culture in Tampa. He changed the offense. Remember halfway through the season, they had this whole issue. Brady lost track of downs in that Thursday night game against the Bears. And what did Brady do? They said after that, yeah, let's let Tom run the fucking offense. Okay, Tom runs the offense. They go on to win the Super Bowl. So it was Tom, right? Do you know what Bill's record was in Cleveland? 36 and 44. That's a 450 winning percentage. You know what Bill looks like in Cleveland without Tom? Oh, one of his former assistants. He made it to the postseason one time. He won one playoff game in Cleveland. He lost 10 games. He lost nine games. He lost nine games. He lost nine games. Actually, one year he lost 11 games. So he lost 10, 9, 9, and 11. Okay? The 2000 season with the Patriots, before Tom was the starting quarterback, he was 5 and 11. He then signed Drew Bledsoe to a $103 million contract. At the time, that was the largest contract in NFL history, okay, for a quarterback. He thought Drew was the guy. You don't give a quarterback that type of money if you don't think he's the guy, okay? And of course, Tom famously took over after the Mo Lewis hit on Drew Bledsoe. And Bill certainly deserves credit for sticking with Tom. Nobody would deny that. So even Bill didn't even see it until Tom actually got onto the football field, right? And then you look at Bill without Tom. So Bill without Tom, five seasons in Cleveland, we mentioned. One over 500, four under 500. 2008, Tom goes down. They go 11 and five. We will mention three and one to start 2016 when Tom was suspended. But full seasons, seven and nine, 10 and seven, eight and nine, two and six. And of course, as I mentioned, the 11 and five season as well. So if you look at that, he goes... Three seasons without Tom with the Patriots, where he's been under 500. In two seasons, he's gone over 500. And not to mention the fact that he has not won a playoff game without Tom Brady as the head coach of the New England Patriots. So it's really difficult right now when you look at it, if you add this all up, right, where he has all these seasons where he goes under 500 and just the one year in Cleveland, he goes over 500, makes the playoffs. The one year with Mac and the one year with Mac Castle. Other than that, his teams have been below 500. And look, this is more of a Tom thing. And now that this has happened because of, we're talking about this because of Josh McDaniels, but this is more of a Tom thing than an anti Bill thing. But those defenses he had during the last decade when the Patriots won three out of five Super Bowls, nobody's denying those were great defenses. But if you go through it and you really look at it from 2012 through 2019, because that's as far back as I could go with EPA. The Patriots offense was number one in EPA per play during that stretch, okay? And that covers the four, or the three Super Bowls, rather. The Patriots were number one in dropback EPA during that stretch, who was the quarterback, Tom Brady, right? So basically, you had the best offense in the NFL for a decade with Tom Brady there. So yes, Bill came up with great schemes. Nobody's denying that. But it's a lot easier to have a good defense when you have the best offense in the NFL for basically an entire decade. And even those great defenses, and we talk about the performances all the time, shutting down Mahomes in 18, right? When Brady didn't have a great offensive roster around him, okay? They shut down Mahomes in the first half of the AFC Championship game. We talk about it like it's, oh my God, they did that. He put up 31 points on Bills D in the second half. Remember that? 31 points. Tom had to throw for 348 yards in that game and convert three third downs in overtime just to win it. 
and they had to win a coin toss to win that game. Tom threw for 348. Bills D gave up 31 in the second half, right? Seattle. Yes, you have the miracle play, Malcolm Butler. Brady threw for 328 and destroyed the greatest defense at that time of the NFL. He threw the ball 50 times in that game. They couldn't even run the ball. That's how good Seattle's defense was. Brady lit him up and overcame a 10-point deficit in the fourth quarter. And then in 2017, Brady should have another ring, but what happened? Bill benched Malcolm Butler, okay? Brady's out here throwing for 500 yards, and they benched Malcolm Butler, okay? And Nick Foles, what did Nick Foles do in that game? Oh, yeah, he lit up Bill's defense. So, yes, Bill is a defensive genius. Nobody could argue to the contrary. He still needed Tom in 2001 to make the game-winning drive. In 2003, Bill's great defense from a personnel perspective, it certainly was. Nobody would argue that. Jake DeLome lit him up for 323 and three touchdowns. Brady threw for 354 and three touchdowns. Why did you win that Super Bowl? Tom Brady. Okay, so sure, Bill has great schemes. Nobody's denying that. He's considered to be the greatest coach in the history of the NFL. But even the defensive guys that leave the nest, you don't have Tom on the other side carrying the franchise anymore. So these guys all go over to different locations, different organizations, and they think, you know what? We're going to take what we learned in New England and apply it here. It doesn't work without Tom. It doesn't work without Tom Brady. For example, Mike Shanahan. You look at guys that have come off his coaching tree. Sean McVay, his son Kyle, of course. Mike McDaniel. McVay is 63-43, and 594 winning percentage with a ring and two Super Bowl appearances. Mike Shanahan, or excuse me, Kyle Shanahan, 57 and 49, 538. Been to a Super Bowl, been to three NFC title games. Mike McDaniel, it's early on, but the guy's 15 and 10. So what, 600 winning percentage. And he's created something in Miami, right? They have the one of the best offenses in the NFL. And they've really found a way to turn to his career around. Heck, even Gary Kubiak. Yes, Gary Kubiak won a Super Bowl. And he had really good offenses in Houston with Matt Schaub as his quarterback. Matt Schaub was making Pro Bowls with Gary Kubiak, right? So those guys that we mentioned, especially the first three, they actually learned a system. And now they've altered it in certain ways, of course, like Mike McDaniel, we know super into motion and all that different type of stuff. They've made that system work for them. So Mike Shanahan, the guy went 13-3 and with Jake Plummer and beat Bill in the postseason in 05. He went 10-6 and with Robert Griffin, and made him look better than Andrew Luck that season to the point that Robert Griffin got the Offensive Rookie of the Year. That wasn't about Robert Griffin. That was about the scheme. I was actually in Virginia at that time doing radio right out of college, and they designed an offense. They played out of the pistol a lot. They designed an offense to highlight Robert Griffin's skill set. And you can go and read this. After the season, of course, Robert Griffin goes down that year, and then he wants to take all this stuff out of the playbook. He doesn't want to run as much. It just became a complete dumpster fire. The reason it didn't work with Mike Shanahan in Washington is because they had a horrible owner at the time, as we all know, and Daniel Snyder, who of course no longer owns that team. And then secondarily, Robert Griffin became an egomaniac. I know everybody loves him on TV now. That guy was an egomaniac. Okay. So Shanahan had this great system and guys were developing under him. Like they were using what Shanahan was doing. They like learned something that worked for so many different quarterbacks. We just talked about Jimmy Garoppolo. Jimmy was good in the system, right? We've seen it throughout the NFL. Jared Goff, and I know eventually they upgraded with Matt Stafford. Jared Goff was really good in Sean McVay's system, right? So the thing here is the Bill guys, they thought they were in a great system. But all that great stuff they were doing, 
on offense, it didn't matter without Tom, right? You needed Tom to make this work. There isn't a system with the Patriots, okay? We talk about it all the time. They can morph week to week. Why can they morph week to week? Because they had Tom Brady. And even McDaniels, what's his system? Somebody tell me what his system is. He doesn't have one. Nobody else runs an offense like Josh McDaniels across the NFL. We all know what the Shanahan system is. Everybody across the league does it to the point where the Patriots tried to do it with Matt Patricia, but the guy couldn't run his nose. He didn't know how to run the offense, right? It's Tom Brady's system. Okay, who else has executed with Josh? Derek Carr didn't do it. Kyle Orton didn't do it. Jimmy Garoppolo isn't doing it this year. Who could execute this system, right? No one. Okay, Mac was okay in 2021, but let's not go crazy. He threw for 223 yards a game and threw 13 picks. And remember, he didn't have any big wins, right? The biggest win the Patriots had that year was the win game where they won 17 to 14. He looked good because of two wins against the Jets. He beat the Texans. Congratulations. They beat the Panthers who didn't have Christian McCaffrey, the best running back in the NFL. The Browns without Nick Chubb. They beat the Titans without A.J. Brown and Derrick Henry, okay? So, and by the way, that year, the Patriots offense had the second best field position in the entire NFL. So the more and more you look at that 2021 season, it wasn't that great. In 08, he had the second best receiver in NFL history, at least from my perspective in Randy Moss. Like Jerry Rice is the greatest of all time. Randy Moss is number two to me. You could argue T.O., you could argue some other guys. I would put Randy Moss there. It's about the players, right? That was about the players that year. Yeah, Castle had a decent year, but he's also throwing to one of the best receivers that we've ever seen, okay? So man, you just think about Brady's legacy and it continues to get enhanced as we see Bill struggling. We see Josh get fired. Bill's a great scheme guy. Nobody's denying that. His game plan against the Bills in the Super Bowl when he was with the Giants is in the Hall of Fame. Bill had arguably the greatest defensive player of all time in Lawrence Taylor and inarguably the best player of all time in Tom Brady. And I always wanted to fight this, right? But the reality is the reality at this point. We're starting to get a lot of data points. We had the Brown stuff and everybody said that was two decades ago. Well, now we have the Patriots stuff too, where this has been a dumpster fire over the past two years. Yeah, you had one glimmer of hope in 2021 and 2020 sucked. But what is Bill without Tom? Bill in some ways is one of the luckiest coaches in the history of sports, right? You could argue he coached the two best players in NFL history. Now, you, if you ask him, he would say he did. But if you look at it, certainly two of the top five, right? Depending on where you put Lawrence Taylor compared to Jerry Rice and Jim Brown, et cetera, right? And depending on where that is, but Lawrence Taylor's a top five player in the history of the game. The only thing close to Bill in terms of Bill got Lawrence Taylor, then Tom Brady. The only thing close is like Phil Jackson getting Michael Jordan and then coaching Shaq and Kobe, right? It's crazy, but the further we get removed from this, the better Tom looks. He looks better and better. His culture with Bruce Arians worked in one year. Bill's culture without Tom hasn't worked since he left. It hasn't worked since Bill left the organization, or excuse me, since Tom left the organization. They had one winning season in Cleveland. I get that we're looking at this as it's going on right now, but what other data points do we need to look at? We have five years in Cleveland. We have four years post-Tom. It went well for two of those years for Bill Belichick. So the more and more you see it, the more and more we realize it was a lot more about number 12 than it was Bill Belichick. And Bill deserves credit. Like he believed in Tom early on, but this thing was about Tom. And I thought like when Tom left, I was one of these people that said, they're going to be okay. They're going to be okay. I wanted to believe in the laundry. I wanted the Patriots to keep it going. I was wrong. It was all about Tom. 
this whole thing. And look, Bill deserves credit. I'm going to keep saying that. He deserves credit. He's a great game plan guy. Nobody would deny that. But the culture, that stuff, the whole idea of the Patriot way, that whole thing, that isn't about Bill. That's about Tom Brady. And we have found that out because all these other assistants try to do it. Doesn't work. Bill's trying to do it without Tom. Doesn't work. That's the bottom line. No way to deny it at this particular point in time. Okay, I did want to touch on this briefly. The trade deadline came and went. Patriots did nothing. Crickets. And look, I think people always get excited about the trading deadline, but it isn't Major League Baseball. We don't see a ton of big moves get moved. Even the NBA, like last year we had it. It was interesting because you had the drama with Durant going to the Suns, Kyrie going to the Mavs, all that. But usually those big trades happen in the offseason, right? It was like in the NBA. And even if you think about it from Adam Silver's perspective, (laughs) on the day of the NFL trading deadline, you get the Harden trade, which is kind of like, this is supposed to be the NFL's day, and it's more about James Harden and the Clippers and the Sixers and all that. But anyway, so on the day that the NFL is supposed to own the NBA, or excuse me, own the sports day, it's the NBA that owns it. It's just funny. But anyway, so that's a digression. I understand we don't ordinarily see a lot of movement at the deadline, but the Patriots, I thought, would at least make a move. I talked about it earlier in the week. I thought the guy they would move is Josh Uche. And so look, I look at what Washington did, who ironically the Patriots are going to be playing this weekend. They were in an odd position. They had already paid Jonathan Allen and Deron Payne big money on the defensive line. Allen 72 mil with 35.6 guarantee, Payne 4 for 90, 59 in total guarantee. They just gave him that deal. So Montez Sweat is a free agent after the season. And Chase Young as well. They didn't pick up his fifth year option. So they get a second back from the Bears for Montez Sweat. So this is a team that I would have been calling if I was the Patriots because clearly that's desperate. You're giving up a second round draft pick for Montez Sweat. This team isn't even good. And remember Ryan Poles last year, they made the trade for Chase Claypool. It's a dumpster fire of an organization. So if you sniff desperation, you got to be calling them. And then secondarily, they got a third back for Chase Young, did Washington, which the 49ers get young, of course, kind of embarrassing for a guy they pick second overall. Bill would never do that, right? Like if he had a high draft pick like that, he would not just, you know, hey, this didn't work and take something back that's a third round pick. Like he wouldn't do that. I mean, his ego wouldn't allow him to do that. But anyway, the Bears, I just feel like you should have called them if they were that desperate. But anyway, and even the pick like for the 49ers, all they gave up is a third in terms of a compensatory. They end up getting that third round pick for a compensatory pick because the Titans hired Rand Carthon who it's part of the the recent rule the NFL has made that it rewards teams for developing minority coaches and assistants. So that'll be at the end of the third round. So that pick isn't even that great. I'm surprised the Patriots weren't. Maybe they were, but it just felt like that's a team that you could have called as well. I mean, even that, a compensatory third round pick for Josh Uche. And look, maybe the market wasn't there for Uche, but the Commanders are not a contending team. They already paid two guys. Young has dealt with injuries. So it made sense for them to just get draft capital back as... They're heading towards a rebuild for probably a different coach. I can't imagine that Ron Rivera is around in the future. So I look at Young. He has the reputation of being the number two pick, but he hasn't lived up to that. Now, this season, he's at five sacks compared to Josh Uche, who's at two, but Uche's missed the last two games. Young dealt with an injury last year. He missed a game earlier this season. But if you look at Uche last year, 11 and a half sacks. Chase Young's career high is seven and a half. And if you look at it, I get Josh Uche is a one-trick pony as a pass rusher, And he's not great against the run. But if you look at pro football focuses, rush defense grades, Uche is 70th among edge players and Young is 110th. So Young's not good against the run either. 
if you look at the pass rush stuff, Chase Young's at 18.4% in terms of his win rate, which is 13th. Uche's 16th at 16.5. And last year, Uche was at 19.2%, which was sixth in the NFL. So look, Washington, as we said, they're more motivated to make moves because they're not bringing those guys back. Those guys were not going to sign contracts with the team, so I understand that. But I'm just interested because Uche does seem like the type of player that the Pats wouldn't extend. A guy that's undersized and is a pure pass rusher. I don't see them extending him. Now, I would like to be wrong because I like Uche as a player. And I would be fine if they signed him. But if you're not going to sign him, I would have moved on from the player. I would have, quite frankly, taken a fourth for Uche if that was out there. But maybe you could have even gotten a third based on what we saw Chase Young go for. Maybe that teams just think that Chase Young is a far significant significantly better player and I get it because of the second round pick but he has not had a great NFL career I just feel like hey if you're not re-signing Josh Uche this was not a good day for the Patriots if Uche is not part of the future this will be deemed a miscalculation by the Patriots and in particular Bill Belichick so I think what probably happened is Washington was aggressively shopping their guys because they knew they weren't bringing him back and with the Patriots it felt like they were just listening right so look if they want to keep Uche around like I said I'm good with that I like him as a player, but if he's not going to be here, I would have tried to get something that would help you in terms of manipulating the draft board in 2024 because you want to have as many bites at the apple as possible. Like you look at Washington now, they get an extra third round pick and they get an extra second round pick, right? For draft capital, when they're three and five, they're actually better than the Patriots and you have things that can help you in the future. That's the way that I would have gone if I'm the Patriots. Embrace the suck, embrace the tank. You're two and six right now. Your record says you're the worst team in the AFC and pick up more draft assets. That's what I would have been doing if I was the Patriots. Clearly, they disagreed with me on that. And I can't believe I'm saying it, but I actually like what Washington did. And if you just look at it in the future and you start to think about how much this team really needs, this is why I say I would have tried to get assets at the deadline. There weren't a lot of sellers, okay? I would have tried to be a seller at that particular point in time and get draft capital back. So I had more bites at the apple, right? You look at the receiver position, and you start to think you have Parker, you have Bourne, and Bourne's coming off an injury next year. Douglas, who knows with Thornton, and Thornton has done nothing for you, and Booty. That's it. So you have Kayshawn Booty, you have Taekwon Thornton, who has not worked out. Booty's really not seen much playing time. The Juju mess. So you could still add a receiver. You still need to add a receiver at some point in next year's draft or in free agency. Running backs, you probably want a younger backup for Zeke that can catch the ball out of the backfield to go alongside Ramondre Corners. You probably feel pretty good about that, depending on how Jack Jones finishes out the season, but you feel great about Christian Gonzalez, who was awesome for you before the injury. So corner, you feel good about. Tight ends, Farrell Brown's on a one-year deal. Hunter Henry done after this year contractually. Gasicki's on a one-year deal. So you don't really feel good about that position. None of those guys are under contract, and quite frankly, none of them are great. In fact, you could argue that Farrell Brown's been the best of the bunch. Anyway, the offensive line, you still have questions. Certainly at the tackle possession, uh, position rather on when you I would imagine they want to keep him around he's been good for them and he's versatile he's playing right tackle right now Trent Brown has been banged up and this is his 30 year old season I don't see him coming back City Sow has been pretty good since week six one pressure zero sacks that's via PFF so he's been good but Riley Reef never factored into the equation Cole Strange used a first round pick on so he hasn't been great but I would imagine he's back and he's been banged up so you don't feel great about the offensive line yeah there's some pieces there in terms of the interior but you still got to address the tackle situation which you needed to address last year and you didn't address it right so and then you look at the defense 
Barmore has flashed recently. You have Keon White getting some time now, and he'll get more time. Matthew Judon should be back from the injury, but he's going to be another year older. So you feel okay about that group in terms of the defensive line. The linebacking core, Bentley has been good. Had an injury last week to Hammy. Tavai has played really well. PFF has him ranked as their ninth-ranked linebacker. And maybe Mapu plays more linebacker. <laughs> Probably don't want to see him at, sa- at safety, especially when Tyreek Hill's on the field. The safeties, though, Jabril Peppers, seventh-ranked safety via PFF. He's been awesome. So you feel a lot better about the defensive personnel, right? Basically, we're looking at the same questions from a Patriots perspective in terms of the organization that you've had since 2019. Who are the weapons? And most importantly, who's the quarterback? And if you use a high draft pick on the quarterback next year, right, which I have advocated for, I've said, you've heard me on the pod, I want a new quarterback, I want them to use a high draft pick on a rookie quarterback, okay? So if you're drafting a quarterback high, you need more capital for drafting weapons and drafting offensive linemen, unless you want to go do this in free agency, right? T. Higgins is a free agent who's a stud. We'll see what happens with him in Cincinnati. Kelvin Ridley had a big game last week, but the three prior games, he was at 40 yards or less. He's really had three really good games and a bunch of eh, okay games. So that's really the market, and we'll see. You would think Jacksonville, if they really like Ridley, they're going to bring him back. So I just look at the trading deadline. I'm two and six. I would have been doing everything I possibly can to get more assets for trades moving up and down the draft board. So I just believe the trading deadline was a missed opportunity for the Patriots. Now, some of the guys that you could have traded, Uche on when you dugger, all are good players, but let's see about that. Let's see if they're on the team going forward. Also, I know Bill doesn't think about it from the way of moving on from these guys for better draft picks. So that's the thing is like Bill will not embrace the tank. Like the Cardinals did that, right? Where they said, hey, Josh Dobbs, uh, go ahead. Uh, you, you can go play for Minnesota. Washington is now doing this. They're three and five. They're better than the Patriots. They're saying, hey, let's embrace the tank. Let's go into next year's draft with more draft capital. It's a wise decision for them to be able to do that. The Patriots didn't do that. It's just crazy to me. We have the same questions about this team since Tom left. Quarterback, weapons, and this could have at least helped you. And maybe it doesn't help you that much. Maybe you get a fourth round pick back for Josh Uche and that's it. But hey, that's at least something you didn't have before, especially if you don't keep Uche around in the future. So I just feel like they should have embraced who they were right now in terms of their place in the NFL. They have unequivocally one of the worst rosters in the league. If it was me, I would have just embraced that, see what I could get for certain guys, because you have to start this over. This isn't a quick fix for this Patriots organization. I just feel like the trading deadline, from my perspective, was a missed opportunity with all the needs that this team is going to have going into next offseason. So I was a little disappointed at the trading deadline, but not surprised. I mean, not surprised. This organization right now is completely delusional. All right, coming up next, I do want to get to a call and we'll get to an email as well. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. We do have time for a call. We'll get to an email as well. That phone number is 617-396-7172. Who's up first? Hey, Brian. It's uh, Zach from Rochester again. Uh, I'm really curious. Uh, I know everyone's talking about replacing Max with the draft. 
but I, I'm really curious what happens if the Patriots aren't in position uh, to get one of the big QBs, uh, or if I, I think we really don't like anyone who's who's available there. Um, I, I'm curious if there's anyone out there in the league who, who you think is gettable uh, that you think the Patriots should maybe go after. I mean, I think there's some guys out there. I mean, I, I would be interested to see what the price for Kyler Murray would be. Um, I mean, I know he has an injury history, but an absurd contract, but that feels like that might be worthwhile, uh, especially if you can get some weapons to go around the guy. Um, I mean, I don't want any part of Kirk or any part of Tannehill or, or any of those older guys. Um, I, I think you're really looking for a younger guy, but I'm curious if there's anyone you got your eye on uh, that the Patriots should be going after. All right, yeah, it's a fair question. When I look at it, obviously, as you mentioned off the top, if they're out of contention for one of those top five spots to get one of the quarterbacks, I obviously want a rookie quarterback. I want to reset this thing in terms of not just getting a new quarterback in here, but resetting the rookie clock in terms of that's going to help you build out your roster. It's it's really baffling that the Patriots haven't been able to do that. It's one of the cheat codes in the NFL. And unfortunately, Bill Belichick and company have done a poor job building around the quarterback on the cheap contract, which I never thought I would say that, but they have. I mean, they've been a dumpster fire like we've seen so many of those other poorly run organizations over the years not be able to fill in around the young quarterback and not be able to take advantage of it, right? Like when the Eagles made their Super Bowl run in 17, yes, I get it, it was Nick Foles and Carson Wentz isn't good anymore, but they had a loaded roster. They were paying guys a lot of money because they could go out and make these moves. Even Seattle, like, yeah, they had some young guys under contract, but they went out and they made external moves because they had Russell Wilson on a rookie contract. So the Patriots have certainly missed out when it comes to that sort of area of roster building. So number one option is the draft. In terms of Kyler Murray, I've never been the biggest Kyler Murray fan. I thought it was a red flag when that thing was put in his contract that they took out, but he had to have a certain amount of time where he was actually studying film. Because if that's in the contract, there's some sort of an issue, right? The fact that that was in the contract, there's something there with Kyler Murray. And the other thing that I would say as it pertains to Murray, if Bill's still the coach, I don't see him going after Murray. I just, I don't see him because there's so much of an element of surprise in him. He improvises, right? I just can't see Bill going after a guy like that. Now, if you're asking me who would I rather have, Kyler Murray or Mac, I'd rather have Kyler Murray, but I don't think Kyler Murray's the guy that eventually elevates the organization anyway. So that's not sort of the guy that I want. If we're talking about like a stopgap stop gap situation, if you will, I don't think there's a ton of them out there. Like, okay, maybe if let's say, for example, you strike out in all the quarterback situations in terms of the draft, maybe you bring in like the Gardner Minshew types. He's been awful for Indy, so I can't imagine it would be him. But it's somebody like that, like Tyler, uh, Taylor Heineke, something like that, somebody that can fill in for, or at least come in and compete with Mac. Because if you don't draft a quarterback, then Mac's still going to be here and he's going to have an opportunity to try to win the job again, you would think. I, I just hope that they get a guy in the draft. And the other thing I would say about this is right now, and I'm going to get into this tomorrow, or excuse me, on the pod coming out, our Patriots preview pod, I'm going to get into this. I'm now monitoring all the other teams that suck. I really don't see the page. I really believe now that the Patriots are going to get a top five pick the way that things sort of pan out here. And now all the injuries that they're piling up, but I can't really think of a name off the top of my head. Okay. Let's say this Washington drafts a quarterback. Okay. And of course the Patriots play Washington coming up this week, Sam Howell, even though he's sort of reckless with the football, 
he's more talented than Mac Jones. Like that's a guy that maybe you took a shot on. Those type of guys, like Sam Howell, okay. That that's one that would make sense to me if they can't get a quarterback in the first round. But the more and more I think about it, we are already know about Caleb Williams. We know about Drake May. Penix is going to go in the first round. Yours is dealing with an injury right now. In all likelihood, he's going to go in the first round. So I do really feel like if the Patriots want a quarterback in the first round, based on where they're going to be at in the draft, they're either going to be able to move up or there's going to be a quarterback available for them where they pick. The more and more that I think about it, I really do believe they're going to have that opportunity to draft a quarterback in the first round. Okay, let's get to an email. That email address is pike at gmail.com. And we bring in producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, like, do you have anybody in mind? I can't really think of anybody else. Like, Kirk Cousins is coming off an Achilles injury. We don't know what Minnesota is going to do with Kirk. I don't want any part of Ryan Tannehill at this particular point in time because Tannehill's not good anymore. We'll see what Will Levis is for them in terms of Tennessee in the long run. But I can't really think of anybody that sort of jumps off the page at me. Like, okay, Sam Darnold rehab tour. No, I'm okay with that. Maybe he ends up working out with Kyle Shanahan if he has to fill in for Brock Purdy or something along those lines. But there's nobody really that sticks out to me like, Long neck Davis Mills. I don't want any part of that. <laughs> Texans obviously have CJ Stroud now. There's really not anybody that's appealing to me when it comes to sort of the backup position. Mm-hmm. Is there anybody to you that sticks out? I mean, Mitchell Trubisky. I don't want any part of him. I I mean, I hear what you're saying. Kyler Murray seems like kind of a dud in terms of you know his work ethic and stuff like that. But it's hard to argue with his athleticism. So they they seem pretty intent. I would say in getting a quarterback and just tanking this year. I would be very surprised if he comes off the injured list so if they're going to get a quarterback i imagine they're going to have to i don't know his contract in terms of cutting him or if they're going to trade him but if you get him kind of cheap i mean he's won games he's talented like you said i mean compared to everyone else in the league even if he you know again isn't the hardest working guy he's super talented so just in terms of an excitement level i guess i'd go for him i kind of see that yeah from you know like geno smith would be the perfect like sort of stopgap but why would Seattle ever move on from like Geno Smith has been really good for Seattle I'm not saying he's like in the family photo the best quarterbacks in the NFL but he's solid and I just feel like from a Patriots perspective they're not in a spot where they're close enough like to the guys I'm mentioning like to take on a quarterback that hey the roster is good enough just come over here and you can make us a contender again right like I don't feel like you have that type like that's what Minnesota thought when they were getting Cousins because they had made it to the AFC or the NFC rather championship game the year before with Case Keenum as their quarterback. Yeah. Originally, they had like Sam Bradford on that team, but Case Keenum played in the championship game. They thought, hey, if we just update the quarterback position, we can be in a spot where, hey, we're competing in the NFC. Now, ironically, like Kirk's best year is this year. I'm looking, th- I'm trying to think about this. Baker is probably going to stay in Tampa. I'm not a big Baker guy to begin with. Derek Carr is washed. I don't know. And they signed him there. Desmond Ritter may lose his job in Atlanta. You know what? That would actually be a good spot for Mac. Where, you know, like, yeah, because their whole passing game is all play action stuff. That's what they do. Like, that's how Arthur Smith, the head coach, now, if he still keeps the job, that's what made Ryan Tannehill successful. Like, that may actually be a good spot for Mac if they actually... Do that. If the Giants draft a quarterback, I want no part of Daniel Jones. So to me, it really is draft a quarterback or bust. And I understand the question. It's a fair question. And Murray's probably the best hypothetically available guy. Because Arizona contract could, or something. Yeah, because Arizona is going to have the number one pick. He's yeah. probably the best guy available. I'm just not the biggest Kyler Murray you. fan. That's fair. So totally for fair. me, it's draft or bust. But if you and, have like the third pick, Brian, and Drake May and 
Williams go one, two, and you have like Marvin Harrison Jr. on the board, I kind of want them to take him, don't you? If they don't think that they can get Drake May at three, they need to figure out a way to get Drake May. Okay. Move up to two. Like, and I know it's not the, remember the Chicago did this with San Francisco? (laughs) They got an arm and (laughs) And they got Trubisky. They traded up a spot to get (laughs) Trubisky. It's the same draft as Mahomes Mahomes and Watson. Yeah. Especially Watson. Like, Mahomes, okay, like, yeah, sleeper. People were questioning him coming out of the collegiate level. I and look, now we're finding out that Watson's a complete scumbag. He may be done. Like he, he may just suck now. But at the time, Watson had won the national championship. He had lit right. up Alabama in back-to-back national championships. And he was really good early on in his career. That one never made sense to me. But if they get in the top five, they have to make sure they get Drake May. They have mm-hmm. got to find a way. And especially considering the fact, and like I said, I don't want to spoil this like thing that we're gonna do here. But remember, Chicago has Carolina's pick. So they could have two picks in the top three. Yeah. And that's a team that's going to be rebuilding. We just saw, I, I don't even know what to make of that organization. They just traded away the, a second round pick from Montez Sweat. I have no idea what they were doing with that trade. Like, last year, they traded for Chase Claypool. Very weird. Like, yeah, I mean, it seemed like Ryan Poles. I don't know what's going on with that guy. But yeah. nonetheless, I feel like if you get in the top five, you got to get Drake May. Bottom line, you got to get Drake May. Uh, I'm down. I think the one thing that, we, it gets lost in all this is like, I just don't know how successful you can be at a quarterback in general if you have absolutely no one around you. You know, it's like, obviously, Mac, it's, he has no one to throw to. It's like you, Joe Burrow, great player. He's got Jamar Chase and T. Higgins. Like, I feel like at, at some point, you got to go get that A-plus wide receiver. No, it's, it's a fair point. This is what I'll say to that is Trevor Lawrence's rookie season, he had basically the worst, and he's considered to be a generational talent, right? right? Like, Great player. Drake May is coming out with all. And look, North Carolina has been struggling the past couple of weeks. But Drake May comes in. He's not Trevor Lawrence, but he's highly regarded. Like most drafts, he would go number one. But because there's Caleb Williams, Caleb Williams is going to go number one. Which, interesting side note on that is I wonder if Caleb Williams stops playing if they lose this weekend to Washington. Does he just sort of shut it down because of the draft? I, I would think that's unfair to your teammates, but... We've seen this kind of stuff like now that college, like all these guys are getting paid. He may sort of try to preserve himself, if you will. But Mm -hmm. anyway, getting back to my original point there is if you look at Trevor Lawrence after his rookie season, they, of course, got rid of Urban Meyer, who that was a complete dumpster fire. (laughs) And then they went out that offseason and they end up signing Evan Ingram. They signed Christian Kirk and Christian Kirk. Everybody laughed at that contract. He's been good for them. They also traded for Calvin Ridley when yeah. Calvin Ridley was a guy that, of course, was coming off the suspension. So they traded for him. So those weapons, like his main weapons, were not there his rookie year. He was set up to fail. So the most, and you would not ideally want to do it this way. Like you want your quarterback to have weapons and guys that he can develop with, which I think that's why it's important for us to see what Douglas is down the stretch of the yeah. season, et cetera. But my point with that is if the guy's that good, he's going to be okay going through some growing pains, not having the necessary weapons, you're not going to ruin them after one year. Like, it's not going to be a David Carr situation. Like, if you think that highly of the player, just draft him, okay? Don't worry about the situation. But to your point, Marvin Harrison Jr. is incredibly enticing because that guy, man, he should be up for the Heisman Trophy. In fact, I would be surprised if he's not there for the Heisman Trophy this year because Mm -hmm. we've had receivers, like, Devontae Smith won it a couple of years ago. He has been, that guy made some ridiculous catches in the game against yeah. Penn State. I mean, he in that Ohio State team, it's not a vintage, not to go on a whole college football thing, it's not <laughs> a vintage Ohio State team, but that guy's unbelievable. Great genes, too. By the way, 
Would have liked him to go to Syracuse like his father, but didn't want to do that. Thank you very much. It'd be hard to pass up Ohio State for Syracuse as an unbiased guy. Ah, thanks, Jamie. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, man. All right, hey, so let's get to an email here. Yeah. Uh, this is from, from Dave in North Carolina. Uh, Dave writes, No more lamenting about the season for referring to the Pats. Uh, stick the f- proverbial fork in it. It's over. The visible talent gap between the Patriots and most of the rivals should be enough for the Crafts to put GM Bill on the shelf. Yet they signed him to a contract extension this past summer. Unbelievable. So here is a $100 million question. Are the Crafts really going to trust Bill with the next year's roster building when we have $100 million in cap space and very high draft picks, possibly number three or number four or number five? This is a once-in-a-decade chance to reload this team. We cannot risk leaving it with Bill and winding up with a number one pick, <laughs> a defensive end from uh, Lenoir Ryan State. I think that's where Kyle Duggar went. Lenoir Ryan, yeah, that's where Duggar went, <laughs> Lenoir Ryan. And, uh, and I, Although, uh, in kick, fairness, like Duggar's a good, good player. I know, that's a good yeah. pick. But I get he also point. was like 39 <laughs> when they drafted him. Him and right. Cole Strange. Uh, he says, I'm 63 years old. I'm not spending 50% of my expected remaining live life uh, watching this garbage that the Patriots are putting together. What do you make of that, Brian? So, I do think that they're going to move on. Especially if it continues to go in this direction. right? And the whole thing about the contract, we mentioned it at the time. The reason that contract or the information on the contract came out was because a bill wanted it out there, right? Why would the Crafts want it out there? If the Crafts eventually want to move on from Robert Kraft or want to move on from Bill Belichick, why would they want that information out there? Mm-hmm. It doesn't behoove them to have that information out there. It behooves Bill. So I do think part of that too was calculated where it's like all this stuff was coming out that week about, hey, is Bill on the hot seat? Could they actually move on from Bill Belichick? Articles, think pieces all over the place, talking heads talking about it. I think that that was strategic by Bill, so everybody knew in the locker room that it was still his team. I don't think that Bill, and we don't even know what the contract extension actually is, I don't think that factors in to the Crafts' decisions to move on from Bill, because you know why? The Crafts have a shit ton of money. The Brady guy made them a shit ton (laughs) of money, right? I mean, they got... The whatchamacallit now, the lighthouse or whatever the hell it is. They got the new scoreboard. Like they're making plenty of money, that Patriots organization is. So um, I would not be surprised if they eat some of the contracts, something along those lines. I really do think they're going to move on because now it's it's not one year Tom removed. It's not two year Tom removed. It's four years. And during that stretch, as I was mentioning earlier, it's one winning season out of four. It's one playoff appearance out of four. They haven't done anything. And quite frankly, they've had some hits in the draft. But overall, I mean, we talked about it. I can't remember if it was last week or the week before. Look at the draft from 2022. Cole Strange. Tyquan Thornton is a healthy scratch. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Zappi, they can't even. Max, one of the worst quarterbacks in the league. Zappi's so bad, they can't even put him in because Zappi's worse than Mac. The running backs, Kevin Harris is gone. These, the, they never worked out whatsoever. So they got really got nothing. Out of that draft, right? Marcus Jones is a fine player. Yeah, Jack Jones is, and but he's dealing with an injury. Jack Jones has all this stuff off the field. So they, they really didn't get anything. And this is one year ago, yeah. and, or a year and a half ago now. We're already saying that's a failure of a draft. It literally just happened. It's been years of that, too. I mean, it's been, it's been year after year after year of that. Okay, here's a little trivia question for you, Brian. Um, okay. Who was the last... Patriots player that they drafted to make a Pro Bowl. And a couple caveats is Mac somehow made one because some injuries he got put into that. And then there's some special teamers like uh, 
Slater and Jake Bailey made it once, but otherwise, offensive or defensive player, who was the last one? Okay, that so Pro before Bowl? Mac, yeah, Jamie Collins, no, Dante Hightower, Dante Hightower, drafted in wow. 2012. Wow, isn't that crazy? It's been 11 years since a homegrown player made a Pro Bowl. I mean, fine, Mac, but that was a joke, as we know. Yeah, that he was like the eighth replacement. Yeah, yeah, crazy. he was like he was like your seventh option at the end of the night <laughs> yeah, at the bar. That was ridiculous. And not having much luck. What are you doing over there? Yeah, well, it's two a.m. Yeah, <laughs> that's what, that's what Mac. But nobody wants to play in the pro. That's crazy, man. It does yeah. sort of. And remember, Zach Cox had that great Saturday. They basically don't re-sign any of these guys. I know they never make him do a second contract. Um, I was also looking at last fun. I was just perusing his draft picks because you know he just keeps missing with his first picks. But his first five number one picks or first round picks, he had Richard Seymour, Hall of Famer. Daniel Graham, yep. who's, you know, a good player, not great. And then Ty Warren, Vince Wolfork, and Logan Mankins. That's like three potential Hall of Famers in the first five. Bang! It's like, That's where's that guy? Prime. Yeah, I know. Where's Where's Bill been at? Well, he had this guy, Steve Peel, uh, yeah, Steve Pioli. Pioli with, right. Pioli was pretty good. Scott Pioli. I said Steve Scott. Pioli. Scott Pioli, of course. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't know if he's got any more, because when he went to Kansas City, he certainly didn't have it. And yeah, that was true. a while ago, too. So I don't think Scott Pioli has it anymore. Either. He went to like work in Atlanta with Dimitrov for right. a little bit. I don't, I don't think that situation worked out either. But yeah, I mean, it's it's not a great situation right now. But I, I mean, I opened the pod talking about the Celtics, Jamie. I mean, she's. Did you have the same reaction to me? Like, the, I, I, it felt like it was a joke. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, the, it was in a sense. The first but... quarter, I'm like, what the hell? They're going to do it again? 44 points. I'm looking at the off the pike parlay. Like, are these guys going to play in the fourth quarter? <laughs> yeah, right? I'm worried about. Worried about them hitting the and and it didn't work out. Jalen was four points short of the parlay. And obviously, like the Wizards, you know, worst team in the NBA, fine. But then this Pacers team, obviously, Halliburton didn't play, but still, they're a a normal NBA team. They're blowing them out. I think it's early, but they look special. I think it's going to be like this, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I like I was saying, I can't remember the last time I was this like geeked up to watch Celtics games. Like I was before. The season where they signed Gordon Hayward and they traded right. for Kyrie, and then Gordon Hayward got hurt right away. But now, after seeing this for four games, you just get you just get excited to watch it. And we got to take two days off now, man. <laughs> They'll be back, but they just look so laser focused. Like you said about Tatum saying he learned his lesson, they just they just look so with it. Like I saw, even beyond all the things that you read out, they were twenty seven for twenty eight from the free throw line. Like just a side note, like, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't. They missed one. Who missed the free throw? I don't Tatum. know. I gotta find Tatum. out. Tatum. Oh, it, it was, was Tatum. It, Might have been the first one of the game. Yeah, it was the first one of the game. Right. So he hit twenty-seven straight free Not throws. Bad. Unbelievable. All right, Jamie. Good stuff, man. Bye, Brian. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in six one seven three nine six seven one seven two. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail dot com. We'll have a Pat's Washington Commanders preview coming up with coming up for you later on in the week. Joe House will join us. We'll preview that game. Who's tanking harder? We'll get into that with Joe House. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG. 
in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.